And now I know that sometimes what is right and fair is not clear-cut. It's a bit iffy. But this is not iffy. I mean, this is as clear as day. It is right and fair that a family be allowed to live in its own house. That is justice. I rest my case. Dad reckoned he'd nailed it. Farouk agreed. But Dad was wrong. Hello, listening people. Hello. Hello, Bartek. How are you doing? Ryan, which is you, how could I not be doing great when I'm, you know, talking right now behind the great Polish composer Chopin? Chopin, yes. We need to get this controversy (laughs) controversy out of the way. Might I add... We have some guests coming on. They'll be here in a second. Last time they were here, we had to address a controversy that I did, and I'm back again. <laughs> Last episode, I mistakenly said that Bach was the man who provided our opening and closing theme, and that he was Polish. Incorrect. Bach is German, and I meant Chopin, who is the classical music we use, because he was a Polish composer, because we are spitting Polish, likingly because we are always spitting, and we both happen to be Polish. Yeah, like like Chopin. Do you have any Polish facts for us today on the pod? I haven't asked you in a little while, so I think it's been enough time for things to have gone on in the Polish culture for you to tell us about anything of note. Well, despite his name being Frederick Chopin, he's in fact Polish. Oh, thank God. I thought you would be like, despite what <laughs> you think. And despite his name being Johann Sebastian Bach, he is not Polish. Oh, okay. Was 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 uh was Chopin from Poland in a location where it's still Poland, or was he from a location of Poland that's now some other country? Because you know the borders change over the many many years. I think. Um, and by the way, just for everyone's reference, we were alerted to this by a great Polish uh, think thinker, my mum, telling me like, did he say Bach? I know. I'm your mum is the yeah. only real Polish yeah. listener so ob- we have. So obviously I had to look it up and it, he's from some place called it's like Viela something and okay. I think it is still Poland. So we are going to be talking about a movie that has come recommended. That is our show Pictures Power Wow. That's what we do. Bartek recommends a movie one week, then I recommend the movie the next, and then you, the listening people, recommend us a film. And today we are joined by some guests. We are joined by Alan and Magellan from Chats, a television podcast. Hello, Alan. Hello, Magellan. Hello. It's me. I'm half of Chats. Which one, though? Yeah, which half? The sexy half. Okay, so it's not Alan, then. <laughs> so, um... That's me, because I actually think it is Alan. <laughs> oh, sorry. Let me just show pun the door and waltz on in here with a little et- etude. Ooh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is Alan. <laughs> <laughs> this is Magellan. Hi, what's up? Magellan. Magellan, or as... Or as Bartek calls Magellan, my big M friend. <laughs> Yay. It's my sure, favorite chocolate like milk, that. so, you know, take that. with. Take know. that. He wants to drink you off, Magellan. <laughs> so tell us a bit about yourselves and your podcast. Um, since 2015, Magellan and I, who are best friends and have been since middle school, since 2015, we've been discussing television shows like in a book club format. That's where Chats, a television podcast, got its introduction. Uh we love doing this show. We've been doing it for like nonstop since then. And it's great. And we run a Patreon and we have a lot of fun listeners like Ryan and Bartek. And uh, otherwise, I do marketing stuff and he's a teacher. John, did I miss anything? 
Uh, no, you pretty much got that right. We like to watch cult classic TV shows two episodes a week, and uh, we're currently in the midst of a like tournament bracket competition season, which is a new format for us called Couch Madness. Uh, it's been kind of fun. But yeah, that's our yes, deal. That's had, our vibe. Oh, you had a whole slew of TV shows that, that we could vote on to give preferences as well as a place to suggest. I even gave that link to Bartek and said, hey, if you want to participate, and he never replied to me, so I don't know if you did it, Bartek. I, I remember going through it and submitting something. Okay, oh, good. Great. good. Your your submission was for oh, Rutsuki Doji, uh, but that's a movie series. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's a not TV series, Ryan. But we have brought the Chats television podcast on here for a film, a, uh, a film that I recommended called The Castle from 1997, mm-hmm. an Australian comedy film that is uh, not to beat around the bush. I would say one of the, one of the most important Australian films oh, it's in Australian our catalogs. <laughs> I would say that this is in the top 10 for sure. It's probably one of, if not the most beloved comedies, but uh, I wanted to talk about it. It's been a while since I've watched it. I recommended it because I knew that you, Bartek, had not seen it before. Always wanted to. You've always said that, and I knew that our guests from Chats would have a bit of interest because they've talked about it over the years on their podcast because they started talking about the TV series Farscape and one of the lead actors in Farscape was one of the sons in The Castle. The middle one, right? Yes, Steve. The, the ideas man. And when chats were doing Farscape, they would look up actors, give some trivia, and oftentimes The Castle would be referenced because it's one of his other big projects and always said, maybe we should watch The Castle one day. And then, well, I don't know if they ever did. So I thought, let's get let's get them on here to talk about it in case they never did get around to watching it. But my history with this film overall is I've grown up with it. I've lived it. I've felt it. It's just always been there. And so I was looking forward to giving it a revisit because it's been a little while since I've actually sat down and given it a, a proper watch. I've had it on DVD, but I haven't watched it. It's just been sitting there. This is always one of those, it was on television. I didn't really know anyone who owned the movie because in a way we all owned it because it was so readily available and always on. There's just so many of those films from your youth that you didn't even need to have a physical copy of it because you knew you were going to see it at some point during the year because TV would run it again at, at some stage at some stage. Bartek, you said you didn't have uh, much of a, like you haven't seen it, but what's your history relationship with this? You know what? I think it's exactly the same as the Truman Show. There was an episode of 20 to 1 that I watched where it was something like a, oh, just to explain, 20 to 1 is a show that was on Australian TV that was basically a top 10 show. Um, and they it had was a- Watch Mojo, but on television. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Um, <laughs> Hosted by beloved Australian comedian Bert Newton, whose son Matt Newton, funnily enough, played a character in Farscape who was the son of Anthony Simcoe's character. Oh, There's a he lot was of a little tangents stinky, there. What's his face? He jothy. But but oh, I keep going. Yeah, well, so you in remember this John Little Stinky? What's his face? Yeah. <laughs> God, what a character! Go ahead, Bartek. <laughs> Um, so this episode was about like top 
something movie quotes. And one of them was from the Truman Show, which was like the good morning, good afternoon. If I don't see you, good night. Um, there were a couple of other ones. And one of them was from The Castle, because I guess this is an Australian show. They've got to have an Australian one. Gotcha. And it was the tell him he's dreaming line. That's one of the greats. Yeah. And I remember at that point, I hadn't really heard much about The Castle. Um, but just looking at the film, just looking at what that main character, Daryl, looks like, I'm like, oh, that's... That's Australian as fuck, this guy right here. <laughs> and just my image of the castle all these years, you know, not having watched it, not even really knowing too much about what it's about. It's got that guy in it, though. That is that true. That really Australian-looking guy. Uh, Magellan, could you actually just give a brief rundown for everyone listening what the castle is about? How would you describe it? If somebody came up to you on the street and said, hey, Mr. Ma- Mr. Magellan, sir, daddy, could you please tell me what the castle from 1997 is about? What would you say? Well, I would start by saying uh, thank you, daddy, as well. Uh, this is how we greet each other now by calling each other everyone's daddy everyone's daddy in in our new utopia um anyway (laughs) tell you that the castle it's a 1997 australian comedy film that follows uh, uh what at first seems to be an ordinary week in the life by uh of a kind of suburban exurban australian family um, who live near an airport. And, uh, you know, by all intents and purposes, this is um, a lovable blue-collar group of folks who have a kind of various quirky components to their home and components to their lives and their character, and we kind of are introduced to those different quirks. And then uh, one day, the the airline and the government try to eminent domain the house and say, Hey, we're going to forcibly purchase your home, your castle, so to speak, um, in order to expand the airport or the runway or whatever it is they're trying to do. And so the rest of the movie kind of follows as the family with the dad at the helm is trying to fight this in court, uh, in order to retain this, this home that they love so much. So that's essentially the story of, the castle. Uh, and also uh, NBA legend Steph Curry is narrating the entire thing. Um, you wish. Uh, you wish. Stephen, Stephen Curry. The legendary Stephen Curry, who we'll talk about later. But uh, Alan, could you tell us a little bit about your history relationship with this movie or even Australian uh, media? Are you kind of already gave a bit of a runway, haha, to your side of it with you starting out Farscape. So please tell us a bit more. Yeah, I, uh, I've always been interested in Australian cinema ever since the seminal film Kangaroo Jack, which is an American film that takes place in Australia. Um, and one of the first films we covered <laughs> on this podcast. So thanks for the memories. Yeah, the third one, I think. Golly gee. Even if they weren't so great. Exactly. Uh, yeah, ever since then, I mean, I watched Farscape. It's, it's a seminal chat show, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm not too familiar. I know, Ryan, you've been wonderful in, in like recommending Australian cinema throughout the years. I still have Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, very high on my to-watch list. Uh, and when we covered The Leftovers last year, uh, and there was a significant plot line about a character attempting to sort of incorporate Aboriginal spirituality into his life, we were like, hey, this seems like it's handled poorly. I wonder if there are like movies or shows that handle this not poorly. And you sent us a great list. 
so I'm still, those are all also high on my list. But I really, going into the castle, I didn't have that much experience with this stuff. And I was super excited to just watch an Aussie-ass film. And, like, watching the review, the, or reading the reviews for this afterwards, it seems like we, you really nailed it with this. It's pretty much quintessential. Everybody I know and everybody on Letterboxd who reviewed it is either Australian or n was recommended it by an Australian person. So it feels like this is a really important film in terms of understanding, like, iconic Australian cinema. And I was excited about that. And Magellan, when we said you're coming back onto the podcast, you've had a couple of years off uh, because the last film we did was just too outrageous for you to handle. What were your <laughs> feelings coming back to do The Castle? Did you have any memories or familiarity with this or what is your relationship to the australian entertainment landscape was the last movie we covered adela yeah mm -hmm. oh i like that one it wasn't that out i mean it was outrageous <laughs> but it was fun, it was yeah, fun i liked it um i didn't even hear the rest of your question because i was too fixated on responding to that part of what you said could you repeat your question so what is your overall relationship with the castle and or Australian entertainment? Um, you know, it's so helpful to have people in your life who uh, can kind of store memories that the two of you share, um, because I never would have remembered and did not recognize this as a movie that we had discussed on Scape Chats as a thing that we should watch. And so I'm very grateful that that's something that you remembered, Brian, um, because uh, this is not a movie that I had recalled. Uh, I was, of course, very excited to see Anthony Simcoe's name on the cast list um, when I was going into it. So pretty similar to Alan, I think. I didn't have a lot of expectation going into this, barring what I saw online is like this is this is a classic it's a you know heartwarming comedy kind of thing so get ready for that kind of experience and i would say the movie delivered on on what i read about it in those little snippets so bartek you've had basically an entire lifetime of build-up for this a bit over a dozen years yeah a bit over a dozen years but it is very much a seminal film, as mentioned, and you, you, you had some ideas of what to expect, even visually looking at the characters. Mm -hmm. Since we are from here, you can already determine, or you can at least make a guess of what the film could be about, or who these people are, just because so many of them, just like you said, the dad before, Australian as fuck, you you know that from real world experiences. So what was it like for you to actually watch The Castle after all this time? Yeah, so like I said before, I didn't know what the plot was about, but I just knew, you know, based on what it looked like and based on what I've heard people say, it's like, oh, this is like the Australian values film where this is going to be about a very Australian family and it's going to be very reflective of the type of people that we have here, the type of things that we care about. And that was exactly what I got. We got a lot of scenes of, like, you know, the dad in the courtroom uh, not being able to follow the, you know, legal vernacular or anything like that, but just coming at it with his feelings. Uh, a lot of that going on. Uh, it was very wholesome in terms of all its family dynamics. And, you know, even though I've made, there's like a running joke we have where I'm like a fake Australian and it's like, oh, I've just been under a rock for a lot of things like that. There was a, quite a number of things in this film that I found really relatable. 
It's set in Melbourne as well, so That's some of are, yeah. the locales were familiar. My wife was watching this with me, and there's that scene outside of the courthouse where he meets the lawyer, and he's talking, and they're talking, and he's giving him the rundown of what's happening, and that he's smoking. My wife, Rachel, said, oh, I I've been to that courthouse, that jail, before for a school trip where the children had to do mock trials. And she oh, said, cool. I've stood where they're standing and it looks Whoa. the exact same. And cool. so, so there's cool. lots of lots of things like that. Um, and uh, were you a fan overall of the castle? Yeah, I loved it. I had a smile on my face the whole way through. <laughs> it's nice. That's its biggest uh, strength is it, it's nice, but it still has that uh aggressive australian quality mm. that we have as a people in imbued in it as well where you could say this is saccharine but then there comes a point where people are genuinely mad yeah and you don't get that balance as often Yeah, because the main thing that i you know remember from when i discovered the film was the telling me's dreaming thing which is you know very put down kind of thing to say i did think that it would be a bit more in line with uh you know where when they're dropping swear words in this film thing like that so i was really pleasantly surprised when the film like opens up on family dynamics and it is like i said before really wholesome this is a film that was made by a comedy troupe who have made their own production that has gone on to create so many wonderful projects over the years working dog productions which is an apt name before Australian filmmaking, this cost $750,000 to make. They had to shoot it in 11 days because they didn't have enough money past that point to feed, feed the cast and crew. Yeah. And they wrote the script in two weeks. And so this is independent filmmaking 101. You work with what you've got and they deliver on that. And one of the things that I found very moving when reading on trivia and listening to interviews is they really stressed two things with the castle. One, it was created to help them raise money for a movie later down the road called The Dish, which I would recommend to Alan and Magellan. Uh, it is a very good film, The Dish, starring Sam Neill, where it is about Australia's Ooh. very pivotal role in the uh, moon landing when it came to the broadcast of the moon landing oh, and how we cool. how it almost didn't happen but luckily australia had some things to help with it but hmm. great film but they stress that this was a, a film to help get them money so that they can make another film but two they wanted to make a film everyone liked they didn't really think about it being a deep movie or a awards. philosophical muse or an awards worthy thing they just said, we want to make a film about people we know or the types of people we know and the struggles they go through, and that would be enough. And it is. And it goes to the point of becoming a, a, a darling, of becoming uh, something that we as a country and a culture look at very deeply and very fondly and relate to it. But I think it also has that somewhat universal appeal of it's an underdog movie, a David versus Goliath story, where you have your blue-collar family having to stand up to the government itself. And that's something that you see in a lot of different countries' cinema. We've done, I don't know how many countries now we've covered in our podcasting experience, but there's been numerous times where we've had the little person having to verse the bigger system. What was that movie we watched about the mother 
who was the one that you recommended from, I can't remember which country it was, Vartek, but it was about this mother uh, and her daughter. Gribovica? Gribovica, where that was about- I think it was Bosnian? A, a Bosnian film, where it was just about a single mother having to raise her kid and also getting over the grief of a recent civil war and having feelings about the government and the ruling class, but it was just a little film. But, uh, Alan, what did you think of the castle overall? Give us your your, your vibe on it. I really, really enjoyed the castle. I think uh, I'm just a sucker for, like you said, those underdog stories and family films where everybody, like, in the family itself, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody in the family itself actually like each other and care about each other and they're comfortable with their their place in life. And you don't get that very often, especially with American family films. It's like, there's the daughter who doesn't want to be here, and there's the son who's so ignorant of the world, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, everyone here, even the son who is in jail, uh, loves the family, cares about the family, and doesn't feel any sort of, like, bitterness towards it. All of that anger is, as you said, like, that Australian anger is pointed directly at the government who are being unfair and cruel and not understanding the emotional destruction that comes with tearing down a like precious home uh so i really really loved it i thought thematically it went some cool places uh i thought it was paced very very well for such a short film at like a crispy hour 24 or whatever i was it, it flew by i watched half of it and like paused for an hour just to like like find some scenes and write down some lines i liked um i think that's the benefit of a short tight film uh but yeah no sorry i, I just really really dug this movie and magellan what are your thoughts on the castle? Um, yeah, I felt similarly to Alan. Like it's just a, it's a very tender film in certain ways, um, but is also um, clever where it needs to be. So there were a few laugh out loud moments for me, a few oh that's really nice kind of moments, um, and I think what's uh, you know interesting to me is like those are the kinds of moments and stories that are maybe easier to come by in um, older American cinema or in American television. Um, but it feels at least from my perspective as an American that like, like Alan was saying um, a movie from 1997 about a family uh, would probably either like be a stupider comedy with like a stupider dad or it's a maybe a story that would be kind of uh, more cynical about what's possible um, in a situation like this. Like it was kind of, uh, it took me a little by surprise to have a movie that was so grounded in the ways that it was that also ended with like a almost Wayne's world, super happy ending kind of ending. Um, Cause I think I've been kind of acculturated to not, uh, expect a grounded story to end quite so positively. Um, so mm -hmm. I thought it was, you know, an enjoyable, feel good kind of thing. Um, and I liked it. There's a pushback, it feels now, to cynical products. There's been more of a, in YouTube and TV, there's been more uh, film films. I feel like recent years, there's been more of a need and a want for empathetic media. And the castle fits that nicely because you said it, Alan, the characters and the family all care for one another, but they also care for people outside of their family and they treat them like family unless they cross them. And 
even if it's the son in jail, they don't feel like he's a disgrace on the family for that. In fact, the dad feels guilty about not doing better by the son when it came to the sentencing and the trial and all that, because they're, they're not rich. They don't know anything. And they are, to Magellan's point, they are stupid. They are silly. They are dumb. But the difference is the film likes them. That's the thing that I think really hits home is the filmmakers may be laughing at them and want us to laugh at how, how silly they are or how naive, oblivious, and dumb at times, but they, as as storytellers, love them. You can tell that they have an actual affection for them, drawing perhaps from even real life because we've met people like this. Yeah, they love their lot in life. They love their lot in life, but as storytellers of the film that they're making, they're not looking down at these characters. And I think that is really beneficial to it. And one of the things that I really gravitated towards in the movie on this particular viewing is it spends like 15 minutes just giving you a a voiceover about how everything works and who they are and how they relate to one another and Stephen Curry's line deliveries of that is great, but it, it's so it feels just like you're in the backyard of a friend's house and they're telling you the story about what happened in their family, but they're framing it framing it like it's their story. But it's it's not it's not his story. Mm. It's his dad's story, but he's telling it like I was there too. Mm. And every time we cut to Dale and he's just there going, oh, well, what movie was it? <laughs> was it Twist? <laughs> Did you watch Twister first? He's just there to ask questions about things that are on his mind. But <laughs> since he is involved in some little way, it feels important because this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in this family's life since the son went to jail, since the daughter got married. These things are so pivotal to family life, big or small. Oh, whether the mum is going to get into making mugs will be a big thing that the family talk about for years. Because when you're in a certain echelon in life, like this family, those are the things that matter. Those are the things that you think about. Those are the things that you discuss. Uh, I've grown up in a a similar situation to these guys, not near the airport, but uh, in a small country town. And It's the small things that really keep generating the conversations and the love and and the anger as well. Uh, Rarely do you get the big courtroom drama trial in your life. So if that does happen to you or something like a family member going to jail or a family member getting married, those are big tentpole moments that bring all these other little things like with the daughter getting married, it then brought in the honeymoon discussion and them going to another country and I've been there where I've known people who've gone to other countries and I ask them all of these questions because I've never gone to another country. So I want to know all of these things, mm. even if they're minuscule and minute and probably don't matter. But it's like, I want to know anyway, especially when you're a kid and you're inquisitive. Bartek, this is a, a comedy film. What were the moments, at least early on, that really sunk its hooks into you with its sensibilities? When we were being introduced to the dad, which I think is like the first thing in the film, um, they bring up the fact that he, you know, bought this land that was so cheap and we don't know why. And it's very obvious, like, oh, it's next to an airport. You know, it's it's a shit place to live because it's going to be loud. And you brought it up. The power lines was the big thing for me. So this is what I was sort of referring to earlier when I said relatable. 
I had, uh, yes, they've both passed away at this point, a great aunt and great uncle who lived in a suburb not too far from me uh, when, I, when I was growing up. And I remember it was a really nice house um, in a really nice area, but and I didn't notice this until a few years in, but they had this giant like power line going over their house and there was a tower not far from, you know, you could see it in their yeah. backyard. And I remember as a kid thinking, wow, that's kind of cool. You've got this big tower that's there. Um, and I didn't bring it up to anyone, but eventually someone in my family, might have been my mom or my dad, um, offhandedly said, like, oh, yeah, it's a shame that that tower there, you know, it's people don't like that. It's so ugly. And I remember that, like, hitting me as a kid, like, oh, oh, that's, that's a thing I'm not meant to like. And I never brought up that I, I was interested in it. But every time I see one, I always think back to that moment. I'm like, I don't know, I, I kind of... I kind of do like it. So in this film where it's like, you know, the thing that he will gaze at when he's thinking and it's like a thing of beauty to him. I'm like, oh, that is, I understand that. man's <laughs> ability to make electricity. Yeah. And, and throughout the film, like <laughs> even going back like to the airport thing, it's like, oh yeah, you're near an airport and, mach and the machines are always going off. Aren't they just great? Yeah. And, and you have so many scenes where you like, you just, there's so much noise in the background from being next to an airport and it's just background noise so then they don't even acknowledge it one of the humor humor like one of the things they use as humor that i think tickles my fancy and i hope it does yours because you've discussed this on the podcast over the years is we have a voiceover and then the characters in it <laughs> literally say the thing that's in the voiceover because clearly dale is repeating what he hears yeah and since we're hearing it from him first it may sound profound or may sound like Oh, that's interesting. But then you hear Daryl say it, the exact same words. And yeah, so you're yeah, getting yeah. hit over the head many times with repetition. It's like a held back version of like Pootie Tang. But it is setting you up for the style of language that these characters use, that they're very much into the mundane, that they repeat themselves, that they just go over the same things over and over again, but they never lose the enthusiasm. That's mm. the thing that's key is he, the, the dad, is still enthusiastic about the mum's cooking, even after all these years, and he just sees chicken, and he's like, what is this? Yeah. Chicken. Just the enthusiasm <laughs> to learning new things. Like you said earlier, they are dumb, but like, in a good way, because when they learn something, it's like a whole event. Yes, it is. Now, Magellan, for, for you, this, I was wondering, would the Australian sensibilities and humor land with our Americans? And so I'm curious to hear a bit about that from, from you and what were some of the moments early on that helped you gravitate towards the film when it came to what it was doing or its comedy? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, to me, there were kind of two sides of that that um just to respond to something that we've been talking about with this idea of like dale saying at the beginning of the movie that this is his story and that sort of being related to your question about the comedy but just is also a thing that i want to talk about um which is like uh it's interesting that he is the narrator character and that that influences the kinds of things that get emphasized in the film um and it almost seems because he's like so inactive to a certain extent in the story that uh, the significance that this has for him is that he is a part of this family unit and that this was a, an anecdote or a, a moment in his life that was instructive to him of like what things are 
meant to be preserved. Um, and I think that speaks to the comedic style of the movie because often it draws its humor from like quaint moments of characters being um, a little bit like stuck in their ways or stereotypical or um, just like not super knowledgeable about things. But it never does those quaint moments in a way where it is trying to like contrast itself from them or because I think about someone like uh, this, this movie made me think of Malcolm in the Middle. Um, and yeah, that's a great I think what's very different about what's very what's similar is that Malcolm in the Middle is a show that like has this family that's down on its luck to a certain extent and cares about and loves the characters and wants to see them succeed in a world that doesn't want to see them succeed. But what's very different is that Malcolm as a character is really dismissive about his family. And like a big part of the story of Malcolm in the Middle is that he's like, man, fuck my family. And then over time, he's like, ah, you know, my family's actually pretty cool. And maybe I'm a jerk. Oh, I'm becoming them. And I'm, and <laughs> right. And that's scary to me, but also that's actually the growth arc here. Whereas this movie from the outset, you know, Dale doesn't have that conflict. This is a life that he loves that maybe maybe he's looking back on it and narrating it from that perspective. Maybe he's narrating it in the moment. I don't know exactly how we want to interpret that, but there is like an affection for and a tenderness for these things. And so the moments of humor that I really liked were those moments of like quaint communication that the movie repeated, but never denigrated. So like you were saying, the dad being like, Oh, what's this? Oh, sponge cake. Oh my God. Delicious. Or like what's on top? calling uh, <laughs> Anthony Simcoe's character an ideas man. Or um, I love the scene where the brothers are talking, where Dale's visiting his brother in prison and his brother's like, how's dad? He's fine. How's mom? Fine. So real. Yeah, I really right? like that. We could talk for scene. hours. That was, yeah. that was incredibly <laughs> yeah, real. Right. We could talk for hours. And like you, there isn't, there isn't a cynicalness from Dale there. Like he really does feel like he's communicating with his brother and is fond of him. Um, and it's just kind of funny that they're not saying a lot of words. So that to me was like the, the particular tone that it took me a second to, to adapt to, but that I enjoyed about this film. And, that style of communication is is also how some people talk to one another, even if they're family. Uh, I know that my my wife and her dad have that type of relationship. They love each other very much, but they all have a conversation over the course of an hour that maybe consists of like six sentences. <laughs> and that's just how some people are. And sometimes when you show that in a movie, to, to Alan's point or to Magellan's point, one of your points earlier about like, family members not liking each other in films because that generates drama like that there could be easy shorthand of saying like up oh, there's conflict here the son in jail is you know angry or blah 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 but no no he's a good guy he's happy with yeah, his family there was with the son in jail thing like every time dale visited him uh, there's this like conditioning that i've had from film where it's like Oh, you know, when the when the you know kind of dim-witted character that you're following uh, doesn't really pick up on cues and stuff, there's there's a comedy to be had where it's like, 
or they don't realize, you know, how evil or how mean the character that they're interacting with is because they're just seeing the best in them. Or they don't actually have that connection that our character thinks that they do. Yeah, and with the with the son in jail, it felt very easy to expect, like, oh yeah, this guy's actually like a criminal, and like, oh yeah, he he he's gonna commit more crimes, and it's like you know you can read into the subtext of his words, but no, it was just very genuine and. To give Dale credit too, specifically when it's in relation to Wayne, the brother in jail, the the character of Wayne helps us see that Dale does have the ability to think bigger and maybe even have a bit of introspection because throughout the film, he's constantly thinking about Wayne in jail, like how he's feeling. And we get these rather haunting shots where we'll just cut to Wayne laying in bed, just staring up. Mm. And that actor has such an expression on his face where you can read a million different things into those emotions in those eyes. But yeah, just to, to with the Wayne character, he does help bolster up Dale as not just being uh, uh, just the dumb narrator, but it actually shows that Dale does have the ability to think bigger and actually mm. hit the mark on things as well because... He, he does get a lot of things right when it comes to his older brother, when it comes to like how he would view things or how he would react to the world. But Alan, with the castle, what were some of the things that helped ingratiate you with its sensibilities, its comedy stylings, its characters? Yeah, I think um, what I liked the most with the comedy and characters is that they felt the comedy came from real place, uh, a real place, right? You know, the the son like asking too many questions and people keep interrupting themselves to answer all of his questions is like straight up a thing that I did when I was a kid, where I would always be like, wait, but but I want to know more. Like you're not, you didn't answer the question that I have, and like you realize with hindsight, like oh, he's asking like pointless questions, kind of. Like, oh, well, what did you eat? What movie did you guys see? It's like, that's not, that's not the story I'm telling. And, like, he's learning how to be a good listener, like a lot of young kids are. Um, and, and you also mentioned earlier, Ryan, I love, it's like, it isn't even just a family. It is about a community. Um, I thought the character of Farouk and his wife, Tabula, were, like, were really interesting. Um, I went into that being like, is this going to be a weird stereotype thing? But, like, like we were saying earlier, the film has no, bears no negative will towards them. It doesn't make fun of them or make them seem like weirdos it's just like oh and like the main characters will say like oh they're a little weird and like that's fine we're okay with that we think that they're nice it's cool that like lebanese immigrants come to australia mm. uh and just like just like us want to find their way in the world and that's great farouk even uh, points out how he uses stereotypes that is often used against him to benefit himself when people threaten him is like i don't actually know a guy who has a bomb but everyone thinks arabs and bombs so fuck them i love daryl's reaction <laughs> right. to that daryl thought that was brilliant he's like that's a brilliant use Fucking good on you <laughs> <So> good. <laughs> yeah the, the whole thing with community so uh, I think literally the day before I found out we were going to be doing this recording, um, I was hanging out with my stepbrother and I was showing him the movie UHF. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, it's, yes. It's a great film. Um, and it got me thinking like, oh, yeah, th- th- there are a lot of those films where it's like, oh, the save the community center or save this, you know, community thing. Empire Records. Empire Records, where it's about like the little people fighting against like the big people within power banding together as a community and i was thinking like oh yeah it's really nice when we get films like that and because i didn't really know what the castle was ultimately about it did end up being like a kind of smaller version of that and i really appreciated that i just got to know Bartek, did you have a favorite character and was it daryl <laughs> because it's hard not to love daryl the most he's what we revolve around michael caton gives such 
a brilliant performance, one that has cemented his status as an actor in the Australian culture for the rest of time. But he's just he's just so fleshed out. It's hard not to say him. Well, I'm a Dennis fan. Dennis Denudo. <laughs> I love the lawyer. I love him so much. He's yelling about their photocopier. He's so he, the photocopy is so upset. He's he's talking about how his girl is only here like Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, or whatever, and he just oh. you can tell. He means well, but he's so overwhelmed by the Kerrigans coming up to him and asking him to practice things outside of his his ability as a lawyer because this was one of the first movies or, or, or pieces of media as a child that I recognized that, oh, not all lawyers can do everything mm. in law because when you see shows as a child, you think, oh, yeah, all doctors can do this. Or All adults know everything. I remember growing up, like... If you have a degree, you must be able to do everything yeah. in that degree. And so when like, Dennis is like, dude, I don't know how to do that type of law. I like to do these things specifically. Like, I remember growing up, my dad told me, like, oh, yeah, adults know everything. I'm like, oh, good. I'm going to be a genius soon. So that's going to be cool. And then... <laughs> And I come to as adult and like all the relatable posts on social media is like, oh, is this adulting or something like yes. that? Yes. <laughs> uh, but I loved I loved their lawyer. I loved him. I loved his courtroom shenanigans. The vibe is the quote that I use the most. It's the vibe of the thing is so applicable oh to any conversation. It's probably my favorite like quote in the film they say yeah. there's so many that you can pick from but mm. i loved him i loved when he walked up to the judge and asked her opinion how am i doing <laughs> am i in the ballpark can, can you give me an angle <laughs> just, oh my god and then he says you know what no i've got one it's good and it's just summarizing <laughs> what he already said <laughs> it's the constitution it's marbo it's the vibe that, no, that's it it's the vibe he's just such a great character. I love that performance too because you look at him and he's like a he he he's a disheveled man and so you're expecting more of your like shady lawyer type but it's just because he's so damn tired mm. of not knowing how to do this specific job type. Like and, he's and, good at his normal job but they keep asking him to do things that he's stressed out all the time and, and I relate. And all the other characters we like have such blind faith in, in him in spite of the fact that he's like guys I don't know what I'm doing. And again that's the thing about the Kerrigans is slowly over time they're becoming disillusioned and same with Con as well disillusioned with the authorities like the authority figures because they start out with so many of them being like well we can trust them he's got a degree yeah <laughs> we can trust the government they look out for our best interests they know that it's a home hey they have their friends with a cop they are right and we want the value of our home that's going to be a good thing he'll he'll appraise our home and then he'll That'll like up our home value or something. It's like no, it's because they're selling. Do you know much about lead? <laughs> <laughs> Again, just uh, all these the red things. About Dennis is basically Gil from The Simpsons, but again, less like dark. Like it's not sad that he's bad at this. It's just like he just doesn't know. Like it's it's almost innocent. And I think what really underlines the comedy of the whole it's the vibe thing and why it's funny to me that people say that now. Like it's a kind of a Gen Z term is what he's saying is a vibe is how his plea relates to the entire Australian constitution. Like, oh, just generally like, like that's like me saying like, yeah, like this is kind of like the American constitution. This is constitutional, I guess, sort of. That's the vibe I'm getting in a legal proceeding. Like it's that's great amazing. That's it's just, great because it's, it's a, level. yeah, it's great because it's a dumbed down version of what ultimately ends up being the right. argument. He was yes, actually and, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and But it comes back to Daryl when he first went to court by himself. He was arguing the same thing. Mm. 
And what's really, I think a moment that really unlocks what the castle is doing in its writing skills is the scene near the end of the movie when Daryl has hit his low point, he's packing up the pool room, the the iconic, it's going straight to the pool room, and he relates to the aboriginals he's like oh i understand and the wife's like have you been drinking he's like no 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 i get it and he and he has this you know clumsy way of describing what is what has gone on with the aboriginals and relating it to himself and that perfectly captures what the castle is doing which is they know what they feel and they have the understanding but they don't have the words to communicate so Spot what daryl did then was describe marbo which is what the lawyer was trying to use in his case, and then the other lawyer actually used correctly in his case. And constantly throughout the movie, the characters just don't have the way to articulate the correct thing, but they know it. They know it in their hearts, and they just don't have the ability to transmit it out of the way of just how an Australian, an average Australian would, which is... This isn't right. Australia as a country, as an identity, we very much love the Aussie battler. We love the little guy, and we often have the... We pound our fist on the table and say, that ain't fucking right, mate. And that attitude is just rippling throughout the movie, but it's in the system that says, no, no, you can't say it like that. You need to have... That first courtroom scene where it's just him talking to like the judge... And it's like, what is it based? Like they keep asking him like more specific questions to like you know lead him the right way, but he he just doesn't understand. It's like, no, I'm just going to reaffirm what I'm saying. It's not right. And he keeps trying to relate to him as a person rather than a figure. He keeps being like, you should Mm. know, you know, this isn't right. He Mm. keeps wanting people to know on the guttural level, like this is, as we would say in Australia, a dog act. This is real low. We don't tolerate this type of behavior. It's frowned upon. It's non. It's un-Australian to be so cruel. But the per the people keep looking at these characters and wanting them to say it in the correct way, but they don't know how. So they have to get outside help. And all of this makes the character of Lawrence just a huge saint. <laughs> he is. He's great. But uh, I thought that 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 scene with Daryl describing. The, the land rights with the Aboriginals was just... I, I've never really taken it into account before because they reference Marbo throughout the thing and that is a seminal Australian case and they go over what it is a bit in the movie, but basically it was like uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders getting recognised by the Australian federal system about their lands and their rights to their land and like that they owned it at some point mm. and that there should be stuff done about that. And uh, they reference it throughout the throughout the film, but I liked how <laughs> Dennis he does it in the like a step up from Daryl, where he's like he evokes it at least. He goes, "It's it's the Constitution, it's it's Marbo." But you know, as a f- person watching a legal drama, you just you don't know how the law works. But when you're a viewer, you have what Daryl has, which is like you have a feel for it. You have the vibe of this goes against the Constitution. Somehow I know it does. But I don't know specifically how, but I got a got a gut feeling on it. Um, Magellan, there's a lot of people here. You were excited to see Anthony Simcoe, but who were the characters that you enjoyed in this? Um, so I think we covered a, a lot of the things that I liked about some of the characters. I do have one that I want to champion a little bit. Um, but just to speak to what you were just saying, I think what's also great about, I mean, 
I don't know if I want to open the can of worms of like, I am curious about the Australian cultural context around Aboriginal society and like whether or not it's appropriative of Daryl to be saying like, oh yeah, or if that's, I don't know, but I, I, I am not in a place where I can really answer that, but I'm curious to hear more about that. Um, but to respond to your question, um, I think what I liked also about Daryl's struggle and Dennis's struggle to be understood by the legal system is that like their way still wins because they get help from uh, Lawrence, right? That was his name. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. Daryl relates to him on like a dad to dad level. So his like superpower of being a great dad is the thing that wins the day um, in some way, uh, which I really liked. But the character that I want to champion, uh, I would have said Dennis, uh, but we said all the Dennis lines and moments that I really liked. So I'm going to say Khan because I think the funniest lines in the movie were spoken by Khan. Um, My two favorites were when they were describing the flight um, and uh, all the things that, that, out for their honeymoon that they experienced on the flight. Like they watched Twister and Jumanji and they ate beef Wellington. And then he describes the beef Wellington as an absolute credit to the airline. Um, <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. And then when he's trying to, when they lose the case, um, Dennis and Daryl lose the case at the federal court and he's trying to comfort Daryl. Uh, he's like, and can I just say how disenchanted I am with our legal system? Like <laughs> yes. he's always trying a little too hard. He had an eloquent hard. way of talking. And uh, I, I find that really endearing and funny. He's a and great like, tertiary who... character in the movie. Oh, yeah. Did you recognize who played Con? Yeah, Eric Bana, yeah. yeah. First film. There you go. Of Eric Bana. Ever? Yep. Oh, Eric Bana was for half of his career a com- comedian, a comic actor. Yeah. Then he did Chopper, which is a wonderful film that is the peak of it, where he transitioned from comedy to drama, where that film is he's playing a, a, a beloved Australian criminal who's funny and scary, and now he does a lot of drama that, to the point in which a lot of Americans are stunned to find out that he spent like 15 years of his career being just a comedy guy. So him doing Con is is classic Eric Banner. One of the things that I think really elevates the lines that he is given to is uh, Eric Banner, um, when he started his career, was very much into um, a a, a comedy styling that is still prevalent today in Australia that we love. We really love ethnic humor. We really love uh, what we call wog humor, which even gets referenced in the movie, which is uh, anyone that's like Greek or Mediterranean. It also includes the Middle East at times as well. But we just have a, and it grows in different ways. Bartek is a big fan of a TV show called Pizza that kind of goes under this umbrella. But his line delivery is in this way that a lot of um, Greek or wog humor uses this specific way of talking where it's very kind of clipped and man like clipped and kind of clipped and enunciated and yeah. clipped and enunciated so when he's just like i have lost faith in this in the justice system he says it so differently but the way he says it is him sound trying to sound smart but also he, he, he has said, a bit inherently uh, goofy quality to the he voice says, yeah. which is very much used in 
uh, woke humor a lot. He's, There's he's, so much of that. He says it in a way where it's, and we don't really get this in the film at all, but like it, it, it comes across like this is him talking to non uh, people of his culture. Like mm-hmm. if we were to get a shot of him talking to like his family, it would probably like sound like a lot of super ethnic. Yeah, uh, you know, gibberish or or just them speaking their language, and this feels like all oh, their he, cultural points of reference. Oh, yeah, he, here he is speaking to a very Australian family, and so he's enunciating himself. And they set that up with Con too, with the wedding where Daryl mm-hmm. is giving his speech that is very turbulent, and they say as much. <laughs> yeah, but it's right. that Australian way of yeah. of almost antagonizing but meaning well. And that's actually what I was going to first bring up into responding to Magellan's other point with the whole bringing up uh, Aboriginal things is it, it did, I, I did get that reaction from when he first brought up, like, I understand how the Aboriginals feel. It's <laughs> like, ooh, do you really? Um, but it, it does come back to just that very Australian, you know, vibe of meaning well. So like when he brings up in the wedding speech, like, oh, you know, the Greeks, uh, you know what they say about them? It it did not come across like oh he feels that way it just felt like he was acknowledging a thing and you know and then his next line is like down shooting that and he is willing to learn by mm. the end of the movie he's adopted greek culture into his home because con is a part of the family so mm. that is a part of the family yeah, he even says good evening in uh, Greek. In <laughs> and he has to make sure that they know that. And then they go, oh, okay. <laughs> so clearly he didn't say it well, but they they, they like the gesture of yeah, it. Yeah, but... it, it wasn't quite like, you know, in, in South Park when they're like comparing themselves to like the Native Americans fighting the Native American casino no, or anything like that. It was... But I got Magellan's concern with that too, yeah. because like with any. Uh, country, America, you understand this, any country that has colonized over indigenous people, there's going to be a lot of, uh, like, um, I don't know how to describe, but there's lots of very issues. Very sensitive, yeah. It's very sensitive, lots of issues that still arise today from that, and Australia is obviously no different. Uh, we are still a colonizing country, and we have the Union Jack on our flag, so it says it all. Yeah, and and even with the line about, you know, the Arabs and bombs things, like, I'm sure there's plenty of people who would hear that line, it's like, oh, this is pre-9-11. But, oh, yes, I laughed at that too, but he turns it around by being like, well, you know, they do reference that Australia sucks throughout this. That's the thing that I like too, is we love characters that are like these people, but we're not afraid in other comedies too to have them be unapologetically assholes and jerks. Like Kath and Kim is very much like that, where the main characters in Kath and Kim are horrible people, but you like them at the same time because you know those people. They're relatable. And one of the things that made me really perk up was when I was looking at information for the castle and they were relating it to films around the same time, I think Roger Ebert talked about this a bit too, is this is a story that a family like this aren't permitted to be in in most films. And they related it to how the Coen brothers tell their stories, where it's like, you have Fargo, one of the greatest films ever made. But a part of the humor and heart of Fargo is you have this gritty crime drama, but it's given to people from Fargo. It's it's given to these nice, wholesome people that often would not be put in this type of story. The the fact that in Fargo, our main cop is a woman who's like heavily pregnant. She has a wonderful relationship with her husband and she's very nice the whole way through is not typical, but it's still a typical crime story. But it's just who you're giving it to. And this is, this is the same with the castle where it's a typical courtroom 
drama, but you spend so much time getting to know this family who often don't get put in these stories. So it gives it something new, something fresh. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot going on with that. And uh, Alan, for you, who were the people that leapt off the screen, grabbed your attention in the castle? Uh, it's funny, just like if, if I, I'm trying not to repeat anyone else's answer, the cast of this film is so small that like inevitably we're going to start saying the same people. Yeah, you're the last <laughs> one like asking, maybe 20 so. <laughs> characters. 20 characters absolutely total. Um, so I'm just going to loop back and say that I think Dennis is hilarious. Uh, I loved all of his line deliveries. I loved his awkwardness and anxiousness. And we've said it already, but I do think that the dad in this movie is one of cinema's best dads because... Like, my dad, too, is just like, I want my lot in life, and I want to be happy. And so I saw some of my dad in this character, and I was like, oh, this is so nice. I, I want him to get this. Like, there's just, especially coming from this American perspective, I guess, uh, to give that from us, uh, we're all about the hustle, right? The the hard struggle, the American dream. If you work hard, you get what you want. And this movie and these characters are just like, no, I'm good. I'm, like, fully good. I don't need a huge check. And a bigger house. I'm just going to like slowly install some funny modifications onto my my modest house with my son and my two sons and my wife who loves me. And that is okay with me. And I have a child who's in jail and he's going to get out someday and we don't bear any ill will towards him. And just like the the contentedness is like almost novel coming uh, from our American perspective that nobody here is like, I'm going to make it big someday. Like they're just going to live like this and that's going to be fine. Yeah, the... American dream is very much rejected in this movie. There's no, I'm going to, yeah, there's no, I'm like, and the way that they demand things that they feel owed is different to to how American films would portray that because that's also a part of the American psyche is fairness and like I deserve what I'm owed. But the way that we go about that is, is very striking to the australian psyche one of the go on sorry i was gonna say that one of our big you know our equivalents of like the american dream is a value where we say uh, a fair go for all yes and that's very much to bring back the reference of the vibe of this film where it's they just want their fair go and i want to talk about one of the things that makes Australian storytelling recur- like one of the recur- some of the recurring things in Australian storytelling and comedy specifically is we have already gone over it we love the underdog stories that's always a staple we call them the little Aussie battler as a country that's us that's us we use World War one as a pillar of our society where we got massacred in Gallipoli and we use that as a badge of honor because it wasn't our fault. It was the fucking British, and we learned not to trust again. <laughs> and we did on the podcast a little while ago another great film that's also on YouTube called Breaker Morant, mm-hmm. which was a film where we learned don't let the British rule over our courtroom system for the military. So we keep having these stumbles, but we keep coming back up and we keep doing doing that. And just to go to Breaker Morant, 
uh, Lawrence or Laurie, the lawyer in this movie, was the evil British judge in Breaker Morant who I had a spiffing mustache. I thought he was familiar, but I didn't but, even try and, to and, find out where um, it was. Yeah. And then the other thing that I, I'm really keen to hear from our American friends and also you, Bartek, but mm-hmm. is we are obsessed in our shows, whether it's comedic or dramatic, with the modernity of life. We get hyper-fixated on little things that are so innocuous, but we make them so central. So the entire opening is, he loves these dogs, and we get the whole thing about the dogs, and then now we're going to go over here. There's even moments where you're having a normal scene happen, and then they'll stop and go, hey, Daryl, did you notice what mum did? And then the camera will pan up to the light on the roof and she's put a little thing on top of it. And He hasn't noticed yet. <laughs> there's constantly that in our, in our stories is we love hyperfixating on things that really aren't important, but as, as consumers or viewers of these things, we, we get a smile, go, oh, my mum had that magazine, or I've watched Hey Hey It's Saturday, or we, we really have just such a, such a drive to make sure that what is oftentimes looked over in a story is really emphasised. And that's what I get out of the castle is these are things that have happened to the writing team and they made sure to put it in. I'm sure one of the writers has had that that elephant statue with the trunk and they heard that information and said, we got to bring that in. And you got to keep bringing up like off oh, the trunks up. It's good luck. Or the, the dad singing the song about going to Bonnie Doon and Bonnie Doon <laughs> as a thing is so real. How often Bartek have we known people or ourselves have had that one little shithole place that they call paradise and like, Oh, well going to Bonnie Doon, which is a real place. Bonnie Doon's a real place. There's just awesome. so much of, Hail, we live right next to the airport. It's useful because we can just pick up our relatives and walk yeah. home. Just so much of... It's just a walk home, yeah. What do you think about that, Bartek? Because a lot of the media that we've consumed our life in our life, whether it is movies or, or film or even poems, really like to lean in on just the small things like this, that. This film really had... A, there was this one moment, and I think it counts for what we're talking about now, that the film draws attention to, and it's like nothing. In fact, it's reading into nothing. It's when they're in the backyard, I think it was at Bonnie Doon, and Con is doing his kickboxing, uh, you know, Trace is holding the the punching bag, and the dogs are next to them, and uh, Daryl is, like, saying, like, isn't isn't this just perfect? He points this out, he points that. It's like, look at their dogs, they're loving it, and it just cuts to the dogs, and they're <laughs> not doing anything. They're just standing there turning their heads a little bit. And he's just so in love with this image of like, look, them, they're loving it. <laughs> that is a great example. I love that shot. Because you don't need it there. You but, don't need it. But, but it's it adds an extra thing to the scene of just his cluelessness, but also his in, his enthusiasm for, for literally anything. Just look, there's, hmm. a, there's a dog. I'm going to name this one Son of Coco. <laughs> um, uh, Alan, what do you think uh, about that? And did that apply to you when watching The Castle, this, uh, this observation that I'm making about how this film likes to look at the little things? Absolutely. I think my, the other example we haven't talked about that I laughed at out loud was... Um, when uh, the eldest son pulls a gun on the guy who's like, you guys should sell. I think you should sell. And instead of the comedy being like, oh, my God, it's a gun. It's like, 
Hey, where'd you get that gun? How much did you pay for that gun? Oh, you got a good deal for that gun. Good for you. And just like the the leaning to the last thing you thought that the scene was going to be about. Uh, it just felt like, a, yeah, like a very real, this is what a dad would say, maybe, if like guns were a little bit more normalized. And you would just see your son pull it out and be like, did you pay for that? <laughs> and Steve as a um, character is very much like that throughout the film. Like a lot of his gags is coming in saying uh, jousting sticks. And it's like, well, what do we yeah. need with, with those? What? Well, <laughs> what, we could use them, though. <laughs> yeah. The tell him he's dreaming is very much in line with this as well, because like his relationship with his ideas man's son is marveling at a hose plug, uh, shoved through a broom. <laughs> and just being like, wow, look at this. Isn't this marvelous? Yeah. Now this or is the, life. When he sees that somebody has... Oh, like oh, there's three people with degrees in that house. I can't wait. I must. I can't imagine their pool room must be incredible. Yeah. Well, the pool room itself is the embodiment of this idea of everything that's important to Daryl. He will put in that pool room. This knife that the daughter got from a foreign land that she she uh, wants him to use. He's like, no, it's not even good. I'm not even going to open it. It's too good. It's too nice. And we barely even get to see what it looks like. Yeah. And you just see everything in his pool room and it's, it's you know, some of it is sentimental and some of it is just tacky or gaudy, but it's there. This is the treasure vault of the castle, yeah. And as an Aussie, I'm like, I knew someone who had that, somebody had that. There was a moment when Daryl was reading a magazine and it, and it had a young Isla Fisher on the cover. And I'm like, I remember that magazine. So mm. there's just little touches wow. like that. Um, Magellan, what are your thoughts on, on on this when it comes to the film overall? Because it does really spend a lot of time not worrying about the machinations of the plot, but rather spending a time where you're having a slice-of-life affair. And with many slice-of-life movies or stories, these are the building blocks of what make those successful. What do you think? Yeah, I, I was thinking a lot as we were talking here about... Um you know, other like from the American perspective or American films, how they might approach the story differently, because I think that highlights what we're describing here, because I think a lot of the time um, either these sorts of movies where it's like uh, a David and Goliath story, uh, like I'm glad that Bartek mentioned earlier UHF, because it's a similar film that when I was a kid, I really latched onto because it was so charming and quirky and and ultimately so positive and loving of its characters but movies like that like UHF delight in the toppling of the giant and it feels like this movie like it doesn't care that the airline loses necessarily um we don't have a moment where i mean there is the moment where it's like oh you dickhead or whatever to the lawyer in the courtroom but we met that lawyer like 3 minutes prior so it's not this. Villain. There's no one <laughs> face of the antagonist. Right. There's multiple people that they cycle through in the movie as people who just are the embodiment of the thing they're fighting against. There is no that one shitty corporate lawyer guy. Yeah. Might be the guy in Turek. And it it feels like often, especially American David and Goliath stories, spend so much time investing in the face of the villain that you're trying to defeat. Um, and then I think. There are other movies where, you know, we describe this one as like a courtroom drama or a courtroom story with characters who aren't normally allowed to be there. And all the examples that I can think of of movies like that are movies where the protagonist 
is someone who's trying to practice law and shouldn't be there, like My Cousin Vinny or Legally Blonde or something like that. Those are movies where it's like a fish out of water legal drama that similarly are very affectionate towards their characters, where characters win big victories. But they are the ones who are like coming up with the legal arguments and literally practicing law and winning the case. Um, And this movie, again, doesn't situate victory in the courtroom. That's just kind of like a thing that happens. Um, And then there are other movies that in order to reach the point where they are celebrating the mundane and celebrating like, you know, the, the little uh, kind of totems of, of everyday life, they have to throw their protagonists into a wildly different circumstance or setting. So you think about a movie like it's a wonderful life that I think is the most classic analog in American cinema of like a movie that everybody loves and everybody knows and has this heartwarming conclusion like in order for the protagonist to discover that he loves his life, he needs to be see the world where he's dead, right? Or like, I don't know, Pleasantville. Like we need to go to a totally different reality in order for um, uh, what's-his-face's uh, Spider-Man, oh, Tobey Maguire's character to come back and realize that he loves his mom. You know, like those kinds of things. So I think what's so special about this movie is it really tenderly lingers on all the different pictures in the pool room and like introduces you to them very patiently, shows them to you a couple of times and then comes back to them when he's packing them up or it shows you these like habits that they fall into so that you can see the one night that he doesn't compliment the mom's cooking. It's like, Oh my God, the whole world is coming down around us. And the most important thing that we could possibly do is just to restore the thing that was so comfortable to us. Um, so yeah, that attentiveness to like those details and and mundanities is is something that is I think not often practiced in movies that I'm more familiar with because they like are more concerned with kind of individualistic victories or defeating bad guys or um a moral lesson. Yeah, like oh, be careful what you wished for kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um you know, those kinds of stories. To 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 discuss the, the the first part of what you were saying, I, I found it interesting that most of those stories about like the lawyer who's a fish out of water, but they got to prove themselves and then they win the case. Most of them, not all. My cousin Vinny's a bit different, but it's about them aspiring to be more than what they are. They right. have to prove that they're better than what other people say about them. In my case of my cousin Vinny, he's thrust into it and he doesn't want to do it. But then he gets comfortable with it, realizes he's, he's great at it. He's, he's the Dennis of this story where yeah. he's going to right. capitalize off the success and maybe get into a new field of law. But even in that case, it's him being thrust into something bigger and he becomes better out of it. While here, this is about what we had was great and we want that. And then you end the movie and they have that. They have new things, but there was never any doubt that those things would have transpired anyway. The the fact that Con's a part of the family and and this and that. What what there are some significant changes. There's new members of this family, like like Laurie, who comes up to Bonnie Doon and they go fishing and there's pictures of him and he helps out with uh, Wayne's case and that is beneficial. But the, the, the still the drive of this movie is very much 
celebrating what was already there rather than the need for more it's it's really the, the one of the things that makes this so relatable is sometimes i get frustrated in movies you know specifically hollywood movies where it's like i have to follow a character who who wants a new thing and they feel like they deserve it and they have to overcome the bully character to get it or they have to go through some big roller coaster ride to make them realize what they had was good already like with it's a wonderful life but Daryl doesn't need to go through a big roller coaster ride to realize what he had was good he already knew that it's the fact that somebody like an insidious system is saying it sucks actually the the bit where the lawyer the the, the bit in the final trial where they go through what the dad does and do, does and doesn't understand and he and he understood what the lawyer was saying when he was getting insulted <laughs> yes and um there's just yeah there's just a a lot to really like chew into to with that and Bartek, when this became a bit more about legal proceedings what were your feelings because you said you didn't know really much about this and i know you're a bit of a sucker a bit of a got a bit of a sweet tooth for when we do enter a courtroom in a story on the occasion, <laughs> especially if you have really interesting characters thrown in there. So, what were your what were your thoughts overall when it did start to become that? Um, yeah, I know in in most things when we do enter a courtroom, there's there's a lot of room for hijinks, and I wasn't as excited with this one when it started to be that way because I kind of knew what it was going to do, and it did do all those things. You know, it's. It's, you know, characters who can't express themselves who just have the vibe. So it was really just seeing all of that play out for me. Um, but it was good. I really liked when we got introduced to, yeah, the Lawrence character and how he is someone who's much more well-off, but he sympathizes, empathizes with these characters and he helps them through it in a very understanding and patient way. Like, again, there's so many things going on in this film that goes back to that idea I brought up earlier with Wayne, where it's like, ooh, there's going to be a cynical angle to this or something like that. It's like, oh, he actually, you know, really hates Dennis or something like that. But no, there, there was just a sense of like, oh, he said something he didn't expect and he's going to usher in in the right way about it. Like, when he asked him for water, it's not like, no, shut up. It's it's just like, no, no, no. And Lawrence gives them a fair go. He hears from Daryl what their case is and he mulls it over and then he comes back and he decides that I didn't introduce myself correctly. Let me talk to you properly and bring it down to your level because they tell him that they've got this lawyer that, that does have like has no experience in constitutional <laughs> law and you see uh bud tingwell as the actor it dawn on him how fucked the kerrigans are mm. and he's he's weighing up should i do anything about it but then he doesn't in that moment but like with most of the characters in this film he he wants to do the right thing because it's it's the australian way you've got to he uh, gives them that, as you just said, the fair go, the Australian value, which is why I said he was like a saint earlier. It comes. It all comes back to what was it? Just terms? Was that the statement? Um, yeah, but, something to that effect. Um, but with with you guys, what did you think about when this did start to become more of a story in this vein, and with uh, the Laurie or Lawrence character coming in? What did you guys think of the back half of the movie? Um, I can go first. I. I actually know this is one of the things I, I critiqued throughout the movie um, and why it got a four and a half. I mean, not a five. 
I think Lawrence is kind of an asshole. So to use a crass gaming term, um, and that is to say that like he just kind of ex- like appears at the exactly right time. Like as soon as he was outside of the courthouse with the dad, I was with Daryl. I was like, this guy's going to save the day, isn't he? And then he just happens to be like, yeah, I work for the Queen's Court and uh, I work in court that can help you out. And I know law really well. And we're going to save your house. Um, I don't need the movie to like explain that anymore. I think it's fine already. But like uh, that kind of soured me on some of the back end of the film where I was like, yep, this is all going to go as I expected. But my last note about the back end was that I enjoyed the little the little tete-a-tete in the courtroom. I thought that was actually pretty fun. Like introducing the other guy it wasn't just a a like and then we got lawrence and everything was perfect it's like we got him and then the case was still hard to win because the other guys had a really good argument and were like making good points so um that part just about saved it for me but i still thought that him being introduced was kind of like almost betraying the movie's like consistency so to speak magellan uh yeah i mean it was a bit of a deus ex machina kind of thing um which is fine i think I felt similarly to Alan that in that last kind of 15 minutes, it's like, all right, I think by this point I've figured out that this movie is not going to have a twist where like everything goes terribly and we have to learn how to rebuild or whatever. Like they're probably going to get to keep their house and everything's going to be good. Um, So at that point we're kind of just spinning our wheels and, and bridging until the ending, which, uh, you know, I I don't think is like the worst thing in the world necessarily. Um, but it's just it's hard. I think that's the downside of a movie like this that's so kind of um like beloves its starting point so much is that like returning to that starting point uh is like kind of a pat process to watch play out at a certain point. Um but also I don't know that I would have wanted it to go any differently because then it would have changed what the movie was. It would have generated like some kind of drama or tension that just isn't what the castle was trying to do. So, um, yeah, the end of it, I was just like, all right, cool. Yay. We won. That's nice. We got to keep all this stuff and we feel good about it. Well, the film made a promise earlier. I think it was the mum character said to another character, like, Oh yeah, it'll work itself out in the end. And mm-hmm. in that sense, I kind of saw the end. It fully does. Hmm? It fully does. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in that sense, I kind of saw you know the playing out of the film towards the end as like a kind of folkloric thing where yeah, uh, you know, you do get the value wins in the end. Um, it, it really just had this vibe of keep coming back to that word vibe. Uh, of yeah, things will work out in the end and it will be done in a pleasant way. So when that Lawrence character was there, it's like, this is exactly what the characters need and let's have that play out, which is why I don't really have any criticisms of that character personally. The thrust of Lawrence's argument is also the films where it's it's not about the yeah. land itself. It's not about the house and the bricks and mortar or the stuff. It's about the home. It's about the memories. It's about all of those things that you have imbued in that location and you can't sell that you can't just kick this family out because if you did that then you will have to come up with a whole bunch of new things to ride the movie out on because that is the point of the film that is it it is about 
the importance of this location is not just one of of value of of a, mo- a monetary variety, but it's one of personal significance. Wayne even makes an argument that he'll be happy I- because it's the people, not the specific stuff or the place. And he tries to articulate that, and then Dale has to write it down. <laughs> and, and he asked him to get rid of that fuck bit, but then Dale didn't do that, and he forgot. He didn't do that. But Daryl <laughs> feels differently, as does Lawrence. Um, maybe that's a generational thing, but I get it. Um, there's been whole songs about this very feeling about going to an old place that you used to be in and remembering what it was like and or having a home and having to go away from it. But I like Lawrence overall as a character. I didn't think he was a, a dick. I just thought he he I thought he was nice, but he had to talk to them in a way that they could understand the complexities of what he has to do. And I agree with you, Bartek, when, when Dennis is helping him with innocuous things. He's very polite about it. He's like, yes, yes. But I, I, I'm. This hits me in the emotional buttons very well when you get to that point in your courtroom saga where the lawyer stands up and he wins the case by having a culmination of all of the conversations and themes that the movie has been building towards, and then he encapsulates it in that closing statement, and then they win the day. It's tried and true. It's not changing the way that this goes, but. I think there's too much of a conversation around like the tried and true being like boring when honestly, sometimes it's what I need. It's like, yep, that I know how this works. I know how writing works, but gosh darn it. It makes me feel something at the same time when, when Daryl is in absolute awe of his own words being uttered in this courtroom, obviously fancied up a bit, (laughs) but yeah, I just I just get the warm and fuzzies over it, and that's perfectly fine. That's nice. Um, now, are there any other moments or aspects or gags or characters or anything you want to bring up in the Castle Bartek? Uh I like Farouk's uh, bow tie. <laughs> Farouk's bow tie. <laughs> get a suit this time, and he has this little suit. <laughs> it's like a little tuxedo-y looking thing. He, he looks like a little magician. <laughs> <laughs> That was very cute. I liked coming back to all his reactions during that scene too, where it's just like he's not understanding. Yeah, that was that was good. That act has been in a bunch, uh, not too much, but in some very significant Australian movies and shows. Uh, but I'm just trying to think if I have any other points to to bring up. There's a whole bunch of quotes that everyone loves from this. Tell him he's dreaming. Uh, you got the vibe of the thing, which we've mentioned a bunch. A lot of good on ya. Yes, we 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 have. Um, yeah, we we have a whole slew of things. But I I, I just also like the music in the movie too. Uh, we haven't mentioned the the production values of it. It's for a small budget film. It's shot fairly well. Obviously, you see the seams of things a bit, but I think it also is a part of the character that the, the these people are in. That they live in a shabby house, and so the film having a bit of a shabby nature in its in its way of doing things complements it rather than detracts. This isn't one where you see the budget is so low that you go, oh, I, I like it, but I'm being held back, but held back by the constraints of this. And all of the performances are great. Uh, Michael Caton is the standout. He's the dad. He's a standout. Everyone loves him. He 
he's serious, he's funny, and when he's sad, you feel it too. So uh, that's that's some of the stuff I've got to say. What about you, Alan? Anything remaining in the movie that we want to go over or bring up or discuss? Uh, sure, just for my own sake. So I watched this at work. I have like my own cubicle, and people tend to not bother me uh, at work, so I can watch like shows and movies there. Uh, and at the end, I think it's Dennis who like enjoys his his little Hanukkah copy machine or whatever. He's like, I finally got a good copy machine. Uh, that was very surreal for me because I sit next to our Konica copy machine and I was like, <laughs> it like re- the movie bled into reality for a second, a really hyper specific <laughs> way. And I forgot that Konica is still a totally big, like copier printer brand. Um, so that was just fun, like film and making mimicking reality moment for me. But yeah, great film. I, I pretty much li- listed out all the jokes that I liked and there were, Definitely more, but those were the big ones. And Magellan, anything else for you? Um, I think we underrated Anthony Simcoe's performance a little bit just because there's so many other great performances around him, but I enjoyed what he was doing in this one, um, and I liked the bits associated with his character. Um, only two years later, he would be Dargo. Isn't that wacky? So that's our ideas man's son, played by Anthony Simcoe, yes, who would go on to be a main character in the sci-fi series Farscape, where he's an alien. Gotta ask, what was it like to see him as a human? Uh, I mean, I've seen like, him as, as a, a guy. I've, I've yeah. seen him as a human before in behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, and I've heard his Australian accent when he said, I was going to say trade table, so it wasn't super weird for me. <laughs> So I'm just referring to a specific behind specific the scenes, like blooper reel for yeah. yeah that we referenced in the chats community way too often. Simcoe's great in this. He's weird looking. <laughs> just every time I see yeah. him, like you need to you need to figure that figure out that haircut, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> you upset me a lot. Yeah, he's also like my age when this movie was being filmed, or like a year younger yeah. than me now. And it's like, oh, God, <laughs> he still looks awkward. He's just going to look like that for the rest of his life. Yeah, basically. I like it. Though. I like that he's a little goofy looking. So just um, to go over some of the... Oh, go on. If oh, I, sorry. More. I just... Uh, the one gag that I don't think we talked about that was my other laugh out loud moment was when uh, Daryl goes to talk to Dennis and try to recruit him for this case. And uh, they're talking about how Dennis defended uh, Wayne in court and Dennis is like, God, oh, but he got eight years. And then Daryl's like, yeah, but you did your best. Like, you know, you could hold your head up high. <laughs> that was a pretty funny moment. Uh, he did do his best. It was a very Australian yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So some cast or production things to note down. Eric Banner's first movie. We said that. Rob Sitch, who is one of the writers of this, and I can't remember if he directed it. I think he just wrote it. Uh, I believe would, he directed it. Would go on to do many other amazing projects and very, very satirical, very sharp-witted. He's still at it today, and he has a series that's coming, like episodes are out right now, coming out uh, called Utopia. That's what it's called in Australia in America, I think it's called Dreamland. It's been going for a few years. It's a classic Australian show in the way of 
we'll make a season of it whenever we feel like. So yeah, there's four year break between season three or season four, but we make it when we make it. When we started University Bartek about 10, 11 years ago, the first episode of, of Utopia came out and now we're up to se- series five. Wow. It is the classic joke from The Good Place of this British show has been going for 30 years. Oh, how many episodes are there? Like 20? And so it's one of those, (laughs) but great series. I would recommend it uh, specifically if you like workplace environments. It's also a a political show. It's about these people working in uh, government development. So they're having to try and build roads and highways and bridges, but it's all about the bureaucracy and the nitty gritty. But it's great. It's It's a good time. It's very wonderful. And yeah, anytime Rob comes out with something uh, you, you you pay attention because it's going to be funny, it's going to be heartfelt, but he he's a very clever guy, and a lot of the the writers uh, from this were coming up from sketch comedy or late night comedy shows, and this was the thing that really helped launch them into bigger and better projects along the way. Stephen Curry, who plays. Uh, our main character, well, not our main character, but our narrator. This is also a, a big thing for him. This was one of his first big projects, and he's a beloved Australian actor. He's he's still at it today. He's been in so many things, but he will always be remembered as the kid from the castle <laughs> because this movie is so, so just championed by us as a people that pretty much everyone except for Eric Banner will be remembered for this movie specifically. It's like they will always... Like, Anthony Simcoe did, like, how many years of Farscape? I can bet you that not a single, like, barely any Australian will tell you that, oh, yeah, Anthony Simcoe is Dargo. They will say, oh, yeah, yeah, the the kid from the castle. (laughs) Yeah, and he did that, like, just that one movie and he's barely in the movie, but... We've got one degree of separation from Stephen Curry. Yes, uh, one of our podcasting guests hosts a podcast where they talk to a lot of Australian comedians, and Stephen Curry is often a guest. On yeah, there, he's a recurring so, guest on his podcast. <laughs> so we could talk to Stephen if we wanted to, if we wanted to really <laughs> hook it in there. But uh, yes, uh, Michael Caton, who plays Daryl, this is one of those roles where just cements him in the canon of Australian actors. Every time he appears, you smile, you go, ah. Oh, because it's Daryl, like, oh, it's so nice. His smile at the very end of the film. Like, as funny as it was, like, that was my story. It's like, what was your arc? But Oh, yeah, Stephen Curry, his, yeah. He was so sincere in it. <laughs> it was like, oh. <laughs> and we talked about Lawrence, played by uh, Bud Tingwell or Charles Tingwell. I brought this up in our discussion on Breaker Morant, but I'll say it again. Wonderful actor, was really in a, like a lot of things in the early part of his career, did a lot of British things, a lot of Australian things, but then he hit a certain age where he just wasn't getting any roles. He was just doing one part on a TV show, or he was a background guy here, and it was such a tragedy, this really magnetic presence on the screen. And then the creators of The Castle, they had their late night show called The Late Show, and they had a gag where wouldn't it be funny if Charles Tingwell, like respected actor Bud Tingwell, came on and he was all professional, but we're making him say goofy shit, of course. And so they would have segments like Ting, like Bud remembers, where he'll tell you events of his life, but clearly he doesn't remember them all correctly. And it just spirals out into insanity stories. And then they gave him this role in the castle, which thankfully boosted his career. And he, after that point, was just in so many wonderful projects till the end of his life. So the castle is a starting off point for many actors. 
And uh, it's also a film that helped a lot of actors who had already been on the scene for quite some time. So as somebody who really likes looking into productions of films and into the actors and how their lives intermingled with the project that we're discussing, this always tickles my fancy with the castle that you have people like Stephen Curry and Eric Banner and, and even Anthony Simcoe who would go on to to you know, bigger things, but this was where they were where they first launched off from. And then you have someone like uh, Bud Tingwell who had been around for decades but just fell into obscurity for a period of time and then came back and was just a household name at that point. Everyone loved Bud Tingwell. And yes, I will confirm, near the end of his life, he finally played Winston Churchill because he looks almost (laughs) identical to Winston Churchill. And everyone kept asking when he would do it, and he finally did it. So (laughs) right before the end, he did it in a TV special where it was about Prime Minister Robert McKenzie versus Churchill during World War II. But uh, what what an actor. I just thought to reference all of that stuff because this is like i said a, a big film in australia and with our film uh with our film industry everything bleeds into one another it's a small industry and uh everyone just works together in there there's a difference between melbourne and sydney based film productions and stories and how they do things but you'll see the same actors pop up in them all the time and the same kind of film production people but that's the castle. That's all I've got for it. Anything from you, Bartik? Anything else? Um, I guess just a question for our chats, guys. Just maybe something. Uh, was there anything in the film, you know, this being an Australian film, you guys being Americans, that, like, didn't make sense or was confusing or... You want to ask us about? Like, phrases or anything like that? Just out of curiosity? <laughs> Actually, uh, this is funny. Uh, well, another Letterboxd review I said I read was, like, this movie is so Australian that to some Americans it sounds like it's in a different language. <laughs> like, I, I really would love to rewatch this movie with subtitles because there was a lot of slang that I couldn't even tell you that I didn't understand it because it just, like, flew past me. And I was like, I, I understand the gist of what you're saying, but I would love to watch this with subtitles with someone who is Australian just to, like, explain the... the, the well, not, not the... Gibberish, I guess, is not the word I'm looking for. The The vernacular. Yeah, there you go. The vernacular. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That would. There's plenty of that. I just can't think of it because we watched. Uh, That's fairly understandable. Yeah. (laughs) The movie's not. Yeah, for me, it was more like there was obviously the legal precedent that the movie did a good job of being like, "Eh, here's what you need to know," Um, and then there were some cultural touchstones um, that either were. Australian versions of American things like his sister being on the price is right. Okay. I got it. Or, uh, (laughs) and that was the actual host of the price is right. Larry Ebner, who's still around. That's fun. Um, or it was stuff like, and then on Saturdays we'd all gather around and watch, Hey, Hey, it's Saturday. And I was like, all right, I understand what that's analogous to. Never heard of that. I don't need to know what that is to know what the the joke is. Actually, his favorite show was It's Best of Hey, Hey, It's Saturday, where they get the best of it, and then he would laugh and his whole body would go. Yeah, It's the Uh, watch mojo of Hey, Hey, It's Saturday. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and you don't need to understand it. You got got the impression of what it was. It it was a real show, Um, and a lot of people came from that show that's in the industry, in uh, entertainment industry, so there you go. 
Did I read correctly that there is a like redubbed version of this movie that takes out all the references to Australian culture? No, not all. It's like Wikipedia two or page. three instances where they Americanized it and also a different score. So I own the DVD of this, wow. which is a fucking wild DVD. For one, it's called Remastered and Replastered, which is very fun. <laughs> um, and sure. on the menu, it gives you the... Australian, like it's like the movie with the Aussie, the original Aussie soundtrack, which is wild. Uh Then one with orchestra score in brackets for the Yanks, and then, (laughs) and then this is one I've never seen in a movie before, which is, it is an option that allows you to pick your favorite moment from the film. It's like, do you want to just watch what? your favorite mo- moment from the movie? <laughs> and if you press it, it just has r- a random assortment of popular wow. scenes that you can just watch in isolation if you That's want. Because they know all, so it's a YouTube upload. all the random other option, which I have seen, but not in a while, which is, do you want to pick up where you left off in case you, you, you had to stop the movie for a bit and come back to oh, it? Oh, you see that one sometimes. Something yeah, it's like VLC media player. I'm just used to yeah. my DVD players when I put the DVD back in, it remembering and being like, hey, you were here, by the way. Um, yeah. So to go on what Alan was asking before, I'll just read this bit of IMDb trivia. For the American theatrical release, a few lines were Americanized. In one scene, they are watching Hey, Hey, It's Saturday, and it is changed to Funniest Home Videos. Which the- we also had, by the way. Yeah. the lo- Which you also had, it says yeah. that. The yeah, line, the- Gong the- Him the- Red, box. remained, which made no sense. Rasol's was changed to Meatloaf, and Ice Cream Bucket was changed to Ice Cream Tub. I don't know why that one needs to be changed. I think you can kind of figure it out. Yeah. Ice Cream Bucket, <laughs> Ice Cream Tub, like, you can figure it out. I think you can do Yeah, if you have a KFC that. bucket, you can have a yeah, KFC tub. Yeah, but <laughs> that is the castle. I thank you so much, Chatsy Watsies, for coming back on E. It's been a little bit of time. I've been trying to get chats on, and every time it's like, oh, Magellan's busy. I'm like, ah, oh, that's fair. He lives Oof. a rough and tumble life in the... In NYC, so you know he might be. I'm busy too. Hold on. Okay, he's going to go I'm through all too. of the chats. Alan, you already admitted that you watched this film at work. Ooh, <laughs> is a man's cubicle his castle? Oh, that's a true thing. <laughs> it it definitely is. But definitely is. we got here. <laughs> I chose to. I had time to watch it at home, and I was like, "This feels like a movie I'd like to watch at work." That's and I was right. I enjoyed that. But experience. thank you so much. Now we have a recommendation for the next episode from some guests that will be coming on for it. It just lined up very nicely that we we have guest after guest. So usually I would ask chats to recommend a movie, but I'll get a recommendation next time from you guys. But we have our good friends Julio and Alex from The Contrarians Ooh. coming on next week to do a film that Alex recommended for us called, uh, was it? Terminal, Terminal Velocity. Velocity, starring Charlie Sheen. I know nothing I know nothing about it <gasps> other than it's on Disney Plus and I don't know why it's on there, but it upsets Wait. me that it's on there. <laughs> I think Alan knows Is this knows the way it. where they jump out of planes? I don't know, Alan. I literally <laughs> oh just God, said on, what on. I know. I could determine that it involves planes because it says terminal velocity. Uh, but <laughs> I it, think I've seen this. That's why. It, it might be one of the best uh, dumb films Don't I've made. I've spoil it. it. I was film, expecting film a Schindler's film. List with Charlie Sheen, but now I'm expecting dumb shit. Now it's going to be planes. Is. Oh, my God. Hmm? Alan okay, is enough, creaming the jeans. Alan, you will hear our discussion next time on the podcast I about think we, Terminal Velocity. I think we can fairly say that Terminal Velocity is recommended by Alex and Alan. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes, and Magellan's indifferent about it. Um, he's not a Charlie head, as you are, Bart. Uh, he's more of Emilio. 
Yeah, well, you're, you're, yeah, Emilio. I'm, I'm an Emilio head. I love Emilio Estevez. <laughs> He's the better of the He's brothers, one of my yeah. favorites in the family. I love uh, Loaded Weapon Part 1. No one likes Martin Sheen. I, I've been I playing like the Martin Mass Effect Sheen. games for the first time recently. Yeah, he's good in those games. And, he's good in the uh, game, He's the best too. actor in the entire franchise of the Mass yes. Effect games. And it's 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 undeniable. Like, and they have great actors in the Mass Effect games. They have Keith oh, David, for Douglas. fuck's sake. But... Yeah. Sorry. And, wow, wow. you're confusing Michael Douglas. <laughs> and Martin Sheen, of course, was in Babylon 5 in a TV movie where he played a soul hunter. That is it. Thank you so much, Chats. Where can people find you and the podcast on the internet? Oh, uh, so many places, Ryan and Bartek and the Spin Polish community. Um, our main show, Chats, colon, a television podcast, that's C-H-A-T-Z, can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a website. It is chatspod.com. Um, we are, as Magellan mentioned, doing our bracket season right now, Couch Madness. Uh, and as of this recording, we're prepping to talk about Heroes and misfits on there which is gonna be really fun and eventually we'll have a a winner and finish that entire series we also do a star trek podcast every third month on there as well as a new tv show podcast called should you watch um so those are our main gigs uh i aforementioned do marketing stuff in my free time and for my job uh that my podcast work with that is talking marketing that comes out every other month uh, on amaboston.org. So you're a business bro. You would have been trying to kick the Kerrigans out of their I'm house, not right? A bro. You would have been the guy that they hired to come over and just give them a nice, polite conversation. I'm just sending a message. Alan's the one cracking the knuckles. <laughs> I'm just sending a message. <laughs> and then and then Anthony Simcoe <laughs> points a gun at you, and you're like, no, Dargo, no. But well, we, we know he's Dennis because he has the photocopier. That's true. You are Dennis. So yeah. there you go. I love that Alan is like, I'm not a business person, but then can do like off, like just like that name, the type of photocopier that Dennis had and related to the office. I'm like, I don't, I could yeah, not I- name you <laughs> a brand of photocopier in my life. If you put a gun against my head and say, Ryan, name one brand of photocopying machinery. I'm like, oh, kill me now. I- I'm going to be I thought he was talking about Hanukkah for some reason. <laughs> I-, I also thought that. Hanukkah. It sounds uh, the reason I've learned in my life to not work too hard to define myself when people are teasing me. So I'm going to let you say what you need to say. It's the, the Australian main way of against that. politeness. No, we're just having exactly. a go at you, mate. I know, I know that. <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's just that I'm, I don't identify as a bro. I'm non-binary. All right. So that's a my business. What's the business person? Corpo, corpo, a business baby? What's a corpo term for that? I don't want to be a corpo. Either. You are a corpo. I'm also though, a leftist. But no! we will okay, leave fine. it there. You can find us on your social medias of Facebook and I guess Twitter. Is it still around by the time this episode comes out? You tell me. But we are Spit and Polish Presents. We post on there. You can interact with us and you can recommend movies to us as well. We put it in the list. We need movies. Like Mars Needs Mums. We are in the single digits of film recommendations. We've already done Magellan's recommendation in the past for City Slickers. So we need more recommendations. Uh, So you can email us over at spitandpolished at gmail.com. Hit us up there or on those social medias. Uh, Let us know what you think of the castle. Does it work for you? Are you a fan? If you're non-Australian, how does this film land for you? Is it just too Aussie? Were they wearing too many flannelette shirts for you to handle? Uh, was was Daryl just too much of an ochre Australian man for your taste? But thank you again, Chats, for coming on here. And thank you, listening people, 
for being here listening. Remember to be kind to each other, or or else. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna say something that no one else was brave enough to say this whole episode. Be brave. I recommend the film. Oh, thank you. <laughs>